back to this series on Ephraim today. Uh, I broke off in Psalm 80 last time, and there's one more I want to pick up in Psalm before we move forward in the prophecies about end-time Ephraim and what would happen. You'll remember I said we had Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph there as men to study their character as our forefathers, but we don't have that information about Ephraim and Manasseh, the sons of Joseph. We just know that they would be end-time nations, and we have the prophecies about them. But most of those prophecies are about Ephraim and only include Manasseh as the satellite. Uh, And most of them don't even include Manasseh. Sometimes they include all the tribes of Jacob, sometimes Manasseh, but the leader, obviously, is Ephraim. So let's go to Psalm 108. Pick up one here. O God, my heart is fixed, at the first verse. I take that to mean it's fixated, or it's prepared, it's ready. Uh, That's Strong's number 3537. If you just read, my heart is fixed, you think, well, maybe I had a bad artery or something. But the force of the word is that it's established, it's prepared, it's ready. My heart is ready for what is to come. I will sing and give praise even with my glory. Whatever strength, whatever power I have, I will sing and give praise to God. So we need to have our heart fixated on God and the things of God in this time. And this psalm winds up as a prophecy. But when you consider prophecy and you consider all the things that are about to come on this nation and world, You need to be sure your heart is prepared, that it is ready, that you are ready to go forward and to face what is to come. Awake, psaltery and harp. I myself will awake early. I will praise you, O Eternal, among the people, and I will sing praises to you among the nations. So we should be, as we see storm clouds gathering, and now that it's started raining this past week, Uh, or hailing maybe would be the word, Uh, we need to be sure that our hearts are on God, and we're going to see that confirmed a little later on in another book, that we are preparing our minds, our attitudes, to be ready for what is coming, and part of that is focusing on praising and giving honor and glory to God and looking to Him for the answers that we need. I will praise you, O Eternal, among the people. So it's not just fixing our heart for ourselves, but David is even saying, I will praise you to the people. So that God gets honor. I will sing praises to you among the nations. So whoever will listen, he would sing songs of God. For your mercy is great above the heavens, and your truth reaches to the clouds. His mercy endures forever, as one psalm says over and over and over again. And it's time now for us to begin to look to the mercies of God, to pray that we be accounted worthy to escape these momentous and tumultuous events that are about to come upon us. (laughs) So, he says my heart is fixated, but then he explains what he means. 
Be you exalted, O God, above the heavens, and your glory above all the earth, that your beloved may be delivered. See, there's the purpose. Look to God, honor God, praise God for the purpose of deliverance. That's a valid thing today for us to be considering and praying toward. Save with your right hand and answer me. This is a prayer, really. He's addressing God in these verses. God has spoken in his holiness. I will rejoice. I will divide Shechem and meet out the valley of Succoth. What he's referring to there is the division of the land for his people in the long run, that they will be taken into captivity but later restored to and their land divided up among them again. So this is a prophecy about the events that are about to come upon us and then the ultimate end, the other end, when God will deliver us and David is acknowledging that. We may be going through trouble, protect us, but be there at the other end to divide the promised land to us again. He says, Gilead is mine. This is more God speaking. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also is the strength of my head. Judah is my lawgiver. So the law, we, we read this, a similar verse to this last time, but there's something added to this that I wanted to point out rather than just going over it. Ephraim is the strength. Our head is Christ, and he will work through Ephraim where strength will be found, spiritual strength. Will he find faith when he returns to this earth? The strength will be in Ephraim. I believe the gathering will be in Ephraim because the numbers of God's people will be gathered together, and that's where the strength of God be there any on this earth, will be. It will be small, but that's where it will be. That's, I believe, what he's saying here. Judah is my lawgiver. So we consider that Christ came and magnified the law. So Moses originally gave the physical law, and he was not a Judahite. He was a Levite. However, Judah, Levi, and Benjamin were together, uh, and then Israel was separated later on. So in one sense, it came through Judah because those three tribes of Levi, Judah, and Benjamin were considered or called Judah. The other tribes were called by Ephraim once God made the change to Ephraim as the firstborn. So Ephraim is the head of Israel, and Judah is the head of those other three tribes. So he's stressing here the order and the importance of the tribes, which tribes are important to his purposes at the end time. Then he says, Moab is my washpot. Over Edom will I cast out my shoe. Over Philistia will I triumph. So God says he is going to conquer those tribes, that they are not important to him. Israel is. Ephraim and those tribes of Jacob and Judah, with the other two tribes joined to them, are the important ones. And the Gentile nations, God is going to throw out his wash water or drop his shoe on or triumph over. So he states that. Uh, now we need to understand, and we need to understand it as we get into another prophecy in Isaiah a little later on, that Ishmael is our half-brother. 
The Arabs are not a totally different race than Israel. They're half-brothers. And Edom, through Esau, also is a half-brother. So we're related to these peoples, and yet God has chosen to work through Jacob, Joseph, and Ephraim, rather than, well, and go clear back to Isaac with, uh, with Esau. Or no, that's Jacob, so yeah, from Jacob on is what I'm speaking of here. Who will bring me into the strong city? Who will lead me into Edom? Uh, and I first focused on that, I thought, well, God would. God, I'd want to be in the strong city, wouldn't I? Well, maybe not necessarily. And who would want to go into Edom? <clears throat> These are being asked as questions here. He's already said, Israel is important to me. These others I'm going to do away with and triumph over in one form or another. Then he asks the question, who will bring me into the strong city? If you go back to Joshua 19, verse 29, it calls Tyre a strong city. And I think modern Tyre is New York. Now, with all the trouble coming down, who would want to go to New York, I ask you? It's the center of the financial upheaval right at the moment. And things are going to get very dire in that city very soon. I wouldn't want to go there. It says, who will lead me there? And it, then it asks another question, who will lead me to Edom? Now, why would you want to go there? Read the book of Obadiah and what God is going to do to Edom or Esau. So it says, who is going to lead me there? As a question. Because most of our people are going into captivity, and they will be led to the centers of this earth and the strong cities of the end time to be slaves. Will not you, O God, who has cast us off? Now, David is recognizing that the scattering that we see around us right now in the church and the scattering about to come upon Israel. Will you, God, who has cast us off? You know, that could be a question in our minds. This trouble is coming. Will we be accounted worthy to escape, or will God lead us into tribulation? We already know he's going to take 90% of the church into tribulation, 90% of the nation into tribulation. Will you do that to us? You cast us off, you turned your face from us. Would you do that to us? Is that what you're going to do is the question. And will not you, O oh God, go forth with our hosts? Will you lead us into these bad places, or will you go with our hosts? Give us help from trouble, is the prayer, is the plea. For vain is the help of man. Who are you going to look to today as things crash? You're going to look to the government to save you? The government is complicit in a conspiracy to destroy us. And they're in the process of doing that in Washington and New York this very day, planning and plotting our demise to make us slaves to the New World Order. And this that we have seen this past week is a major step forward for them. A major step. So are you going to go to man for help? <laughs> They'll betray you. They'll destroy you. 
Most of our nation is going, oh, the government saved us if they pass this $700 billion bailout. We've also put $30 billion this week into the central banks of other countries. Now the Ford, Chrysler, and GM people are wanting $50 billion, but may settle for $25. <clears throat> so they're nationalizing all these companies. And are they saving you? Are they saving those poor schmucks out there who took the easy credit, bought houses? Are they going to pay off their mortgages? No, they're going to pay off the banks. They're going to take care of their friends and cronies, and the average American is going to take it in the neck. So there's no place you can turn, really. You're going to go to man or you're going to go to God. That's what he's posing. <clears throat> then he sums it up in verse 13. Through God we shall do valiantly. Go to I mean, uh, Daniel 11. Those who do know their God shall do exploits, shall do valiantly. For he it is that shall tread down our enemies. Who will save us? Man's help will be in vain. We have to look to God. Quite a message there in Psalm 108. And it has to do with the end time, and it has to do with the leadership of the tribes of Israel, which is in Ephraim and in Judah. And you could throw in the spiritual Jews there because they're the only Jews that really matter at this point. Uh, the only ones that are going to be saved out. <clears throat> the rest of Judah is going into tribulation, physical Judah, along with the other tribes of Israel. All right, so that concludes Ephraim in the Psalms. Let's go now to the next place that Ephraim is brought up, and that is in Isaiah 7. Now, for a brief uh, consultation of the context here, in chapter 5, we've been to this one several times in the last several years, it talks about how God made himself a vineyard, and you remember John 14, 15, 16, in that area there where Christ talked about how he is the one who planted the vine, and he is the vine, we are the branches. So he uses uh, grapes and grapevines as an analogy both in the Old Testament and the New of his people and his relationship with them. And he talks about how he took such good care of his vineyard in chapter 5 of Isaiah, uh, put hedged it about, put a strong tower in it as a watch, and so on, and then it brought forth wild grapes. Just as he gave the church good doctrine, just as he blessed it, and the idea of calling out many people to the truth of God in the end time, but then we began to produce wild fruit. So God removed the hedge, he took the watchman down, and destroyed it. Now, we're going to read in Jeremiah 31, before we get done with this, that he set a watchman in Ephraim. Now, where did God set an end-time watchman? In the United States, Herbert Armstrong. That is the only place <clears throat> that God has raised up an end-time work. It's in this nation. It's spread to other nations like a vine, as it says in Ezekiel 17, and its roots turned to Herbert Armstrong, and that wasn't good. We were supposed to turn to God. But we turned too much to the man and not to God. And that meant that our heart was divided, 
and God had to then divide or separate us. A house divided cannot stand. Anyway, God said, I did everything I could for my vineyard, but you still brought forth the wrong fruit, so he's going to destroy it. <clears throat> Here he makes uh, an issue in this chapter even about our housing, which is where we are right now in a housing crisis in this country. I'll read that in verses 8 and 9. Woe to them that join house to house, that lay field to field, till there be no place, that they may be placed alone in the midst of the earth. We got crowded too closely together in our subdivisions, our quarter-acre lots and so on. And God said that that isn't what he intended, house to house and field to field, that you don't have space. People need elbow room. They become crowded like rats and they end to fight and war with one another as a result. In my ears, says the Eternal of hosts, of a truth, many houses shall be desolate, even great and fair, without inhabitant. Fine homes, great, good-looking homes are going to be empty, echoing Zephaniah 1 where it says that our houses will be taken away from us. Now, if you think we're not on the cusp of all these prophecies being fulfilled, I don't know what book you're reading. Maybe we are reading it upside down, but Americans' homes are right now being taken away from them. And after this huge bailout or whatever happens in New York and Washington occurs, even more people are going to get in trouble on their mortgages, and they, the increase of foreclosures will be incredible until the whole land is emptied from its houses. That is coming. It's already started, but it's coming. So, Isaiah 5, obviously is speaking of a prophecy in Israel when people will be moved outside their homes. Make mansions, great and fair ones. And then there will be problems. God will not regard their feasts in verse 12. So we're getting down to the point that God is not happy with his church or with physical Israel as a nation, either one. Uh... God called for someone to speak, and Isaiah said in chapter 6, verse 8, Here I am, send me. And he said, verse 9, Go tell this people, Hear you indeed, but understand not, and see you indeed, but perceive not. Now that echoes chapter 28 of Isaiah, which we will get to probably before the day is over, where it talks about line upon line, uh, and precept upon precept, and so on. And it's essentially saying the same thing as it is right here in Isaiah 6. <laughs> the people will have it said, but they won't understand. See and perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat and make their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and convert and be healed. Now the church is preaching overall around the world, the remnants of the church of God, that everything's going to be okay, we'll jump on a plane and go to Petra yet. They don't want to hear what's really coming and what is coming on them. And the ministers are like sleeping, non-barking dogs who will not warn, who will not even bark as it comes upon us. Someone who is on our mailing list I talked with just this morning 
is meeting with a group of people to discuss the Bible and the truth. And if she brings up prophecy or what's happening or about to happen, they just flat out tell her, we don't want to hear it. Don't even talk about that stuff to us. It's scary. It's scary, but it's coming. And we'd better be tuned. I think we saw that in Psalm 108. We better be aware and we better be seeking God because that's the only salvation there is. Then said I, Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities be wasted without inhabitant and the houses without man. But this proclamation covers Israel until the cities are emptied out and the houses are without man. We'll all be kicked out of our homes as a nation. And the land be utterly desolate. They'll take, kill one-third, one-third die of famine and pestilence, and one-third be taken captive, and the land will be desolate. Except for those obeying God, who will be in a protected place. We've seen it start. It's here. It's now. It isn't something in the future anymore. Already people are by the millions are being turned out of their homes. And that is going to go from a trickle to a flood. And I think very shortly. Once the process starts, it's going to go very rapidly. <clears throat> and the eternal have removed men far away, and there will be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. There will be a great falling away, Christ talked about, at the end time. A great forsaking of God. But yet in it shall be a tenth, and it shall return, and shall be eaten, as a teal tree and as an oak whose substance is in them when they cast their leaves, so the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. The only true substance, the only strength, an oak is known for its strength, is going to be among the church of God who are the one-tenth remnant of what was there. The real spiritual strength is going to be in a very small percentage of what was the church of God. But that 10% will return. Haggai says he'll return to build a temple. So it does appear that the forsaking of houses the desolation, the financial crash is going to occur, and then the gathering is going to come. I debated that off and on through the years as exactly the, the time element, but I believe from reading this and other scriptures that uh, according to Isaiah 32, I believe it is, uh, will be stripped naked. You careless women will be stripped naked. So those careless Churches, splinters of worldwide, who are careless with things now, are going to be stripped. And then people will begin to wake up and a tenth will return from the desolation that has come on our land. And Zephaniah were told, chapter 2, to gather before the decree of financial destruction occurs. But so far, very, very few have answered that call. They're still in the middle of it. And they'll be in the middle of it when it collapses, and then they're going to have to somehow begin to come out. But God is not going to 
cause people to wake up until he has his leadership in place and a place prepared. Because Haggai says they will come to Zerubbabel and Joshua. So until we see those two men, the two witnesses, in one place together, the remnant will not be drawn to them. So we have to be able to see that leadership somewhere, and then we'll begin to see as trouble comes, that tenth returning to them. And it will be eaten. God will partake of it. He'll turn his face, including his mouth. You know, when you plant a vineyard, you want to eat of the grapes. And that's the analogy that he uses. <clears throat> so we're talking about right now, aren't we? I think the context establishes when, a, when Israel is being turned out of their homes. And that's not happening just here in Ephraim. It's happening in the Great Britain and Manasseh. They have a housing bubble that has burst. They are in serious trouble there. And the other nations of Northwest Europe, where most of the Israelites are, are also being affected by this. So you're seeing here prophecy being fulfilled right before your eyes. We're in it now. So let's pick up the story then in chapter 7. This is a bit of an enigmatic chapter in some respects, a little bit hard to understand, uh, but it is a prophecy for right now. We've already established that in the context of what we're seeing happening in our nation, uh, so this also applies in context to what's going on right now. Now, it is a story of what happened in Israel long ago, back in the kings of Israel. But it's written in Isaiah, not as a historical record like Kings and Chronicles and Judges and Joshua, but it's written in a prophetic book for the future. So what we see here that happened in the past is going to be happening right here in this day and age. Okay? It has to apply in some ways. Now, I don't know exactly how some of it is playing out because I don't know what all is going on behind the scenes. But there's something going on, and it is not good for us in this country. So let's pick it up because Ephraim is very, very much involved in this prophecy, and the church of the firstborn is also very involved because we in the end time here, are part of the firstfruits, or those who will be firstborn into the kingdom of God, save he, the first of the firstfruits, Christ, who is already there. But we are also the firstfruits, and therefore we are in the position of being the eldest son from a spiritual standpoint, receive double blessing. And being in the first resurrection is certainly a double honor far beyond those who will come in during the millennium or the great white throne judgment later on. To be the very bride of Christ, that is a special reward for the first fruits. And we are a part of the first fruits if we be a part of that 144,000 who are selected to be the bride of Christ. And the New Testament church is certainly included in that because Paul said so in several different places in the New Testament. So when it refers to Ephraim, it can be referring both to the physical nation we live in. It can also be the church of the firstborn. That's not a name of a church, but 
that partly describes us. And I think Church of the Firstborn is, in that sense, a proper title. You know, you can have a lot of different titles uh, to one organization. So whether you call it the Church of God or Church of the Firstborn, uh, it includes those in that congregation or assembly who are to be the firstborn. So I use it in that context. Anyway, it, re, it uh, rehashes the story of history. It came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up toward Jerusalem to war against it, but could not prevail against it. So here you have the kingdom of Judah, ruled over by David, uh, who had its headquarters at Jerusalem. That would have been a Benjamin, Judah, and uh, Levi. The other tribes were coming up to war against Judah. And they were confederate with some Arabs. Remember I said Ishmael, the Arabs, essentially, the uh, sons of Hagar, are our half-brothers. So you had the brothers here of Jacob, confederate with their half-brothers Ishmael, the Arabs, coming together against the kingdom in Jerusalem. Now, we already know from Revelation 17 and 18 and various other places in Daniel and Revelation without going there, that we're going to have a beast system arise and that it will be the whole world that worships the beast and only a small remnant of the true firstborn church who will withstand the beast. <laughs> Satan deceives the whole world and it will be a worldwide conspiracy before it is over against 10% of the end time church. The whole world against a small church. The whole world is going to be confederated together under the beast. That's hard for us to imagine. Right now you have a lot of churches, you have a lot of nations, you have a lot of sovereignty still in the world that they are quickly trying to dissolve and destroy so that they can all come under one head. And they fully intend to set up a peaceful union as a counterfeit of Christ's millennial rule. Satan is trying to beat Christ to the punch by setting up his own millennium ahead of time. And the Bible clearly shows that it is going to be a worldwide conspiracy, confederacy, united nations, however you want to put it, they all mean the same thing. And when it's all said and done, it will be just us against them. No other churches will be involved. They will all worship the beast, except God's 10% of truly faithful people. That may amount to 4, 5, 6, 10, 12,000 people. I don't see it being any bigger than that when you consider that worldwide, at its largest, got up to about 150,000 at the feast. If you take 10% of that and put out mothers-in-law and various people who came who weren't even in the church and children, 10% of that 
couldn't be more than 10, 12,000 in any way that I've been able to put it together. And it might even be as small as seven. Elijah's 7,000 mentioned in the Old and the New who had not bailed or had bowed their knee to Baal. So it'll be us against them. That's where it's coming down. So we are the true Jews. And this prophecy is going to be taken down from a worldwide standpoint to just God's people left. Remember, most of Israel will be in captivity or dead. So if you're considering where this thing is going, it is only going to be God's few protected who will be involved. So it is a worldwide conspiracy, ultimately, to destroy spiritual Israel. Anyway, these came against Jerusalem but couldn't prevail, and it was told the house of David, saying, now David was dead, but these are the kings that followed David in Judah and Jerusalem. It was told the house of David, saying, Syria is confederate or conspiring with Ephraim, and his heart was moved in the heart of his people as the trees of the wind are moved with, of the wood are moved with the wind. So word came to the king of Judah that Ephraim and half-brother the Arabs were conspiring to destroy them. And you, you've been in the woods and seen the way the wind blows trees back and forth and they creak and they groan and they make noise. It shook them, in other words, like a wind will shake trees. Then said the Eternal to Isaiah, Now does this not shake us like trees? When we see the events that have occurred this past week and that we see coming up that are going to occur, pretty scary. A lot of Americans now are scared. They don't know where it's going to come down. They don't know what's going to happen. Then said the Eternal to Isaiah, Go forth now to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son. That word means Shear Jashub means the remnant shall return. He was named that on purpose because God wanted a prophecy about the remnant and how it would return. So he said, you go to the king, Isaiah, and take the remnant shall return with you at the end of the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. And say to him, take heed and be quiet. Fear not. Neither be faint-hearted for the two tails of these smoking firebrands. Now, doesn't God tell us, fear not, be of good courage? Here at the end, over and over he does. It's what he told Joshua when he was taking the people into the promised land. Be of courage, be of good courage, and fear not. Be strong and work. So Isaiah is giving that admonition to the king of Judah, and that could be the church today not just the physical nation. Are we telling, or can you tell? Let's, let's pursue that a moment. Is this a good time to tell this nation to fear not? This nation of Israel? Is this a good time to tell this people to be quiet, don't fear? No, it's not. This nation is going to be destroyed. This is a time to tell them to fear. This is a time to warn them, to scare them if possible. 
So then who does this have to be addressing? The only ones who look to God and don't need to fear. So this prophecy comes right down to the church. And Psalm 108 was a good reference point to begin with today. Be valiant for God and do valiant things. Trust Him and don't fear. <laughs> but if you're a part of this physical nation, you'd better fear. Neither be faint-hearted for the two tails of these smoking firebrands for the fierce anger of Rezin with Syria and of the son of Remaliah, that is, King Pekah of Israel. Don't be afraid of the powers that be when this prophecy is reenacted. Now, do we have to fear Ephraim? Yes, we do. Because right now, <clears throat> Ephraim, the leadership of this nation and the leadership of the other nations of Israel are deep in a conspiracy to destroy this nation and the church of God. The United Nations is working on destroying all religion so that all people are prepared to worship the beast and the false prophet. The people meeting in Washington, D.C. this very day to try to bail out the financial banksters are conspiring against you and me and against all the people of this country. Make no mistake about it. Now, we're not here to fight them. We know it has to be done. We know these prophecies are here. We are to be aware and we're to seek God. So I'm not here, if they're going to listen to this tape, to fight the government. That isn't our purpose or our goal whatsoever. We're here to pay our taxes. We're here to be good citizens as long as the laws and the direction of this nation do not go against the laws of God. We're told in Acts 5.29 to obey God rather than man. So when there is, we're to obey the government, basically, unless and until there is a conflict, then we are to obey God first. Some women have problems with that, saying, well, I have to do what my husband says. That's true, unless what he says conflicts with what God says. And your husband in heaven is far more important than your husband on this earth. Anytime there's a conflict, you put God first and Christ first, not your physical husband. That's what 1 Corinthians 7 is all about. So, we have a conspiracy going on today. And that conspiracy involves the Arabs to one degree or another, does it not? Did not they agree that all oil was to be sold with the dollar as a denominating currency? That the dollar was to be the reserve currency of the world? So that Ephraim's money was what had to be spent for oil. And they are complicit with this country in a fiat currency which is fake money and will be just about as valuable soon as monopoly money is. It is not backed by gold or silver or anything 
but confidence in the American government. And the whole world is now in the process of losing confidence in the American government and even the people of this country because of events of the last week and two or three months are beginning to lose confidence in it soon. And pretty soon, no one will want a dollar. China instructed its banks two or three days ago not to invest in America further. That's scary. In other words, they're beginning to cut their ties with the dollar. And the rest of the world will too. And the dollar will become absolutely worthless. So there is a conspiracy going on including Ephraim and, and including the Arabs, and it will eventually come down on God's people who are told not to fear. And we'll see, even as we go through this context, that we as the firstborn son of Ephraim are very much involved in this prophecy. And I don't think we could have anything more timely than this. Now, we went through this prophecy Oh, back when we went through the book of Isaiah a couple of years ago. And we also went through it more recently when we talked about Emmanuel. We'll get to that in a little bit. But I think with the events transpiring right now, today, it's good to go back through this. And I pray pretty diligently, and I'm sure you do too, that God will guide the end-time ministry, speaking specifically of us here, to know and understand and preach what is going on and how to be prepared for it. And is it any coincidence that we came right to this spot in this series just as this all breaks? I think not. I think I see God's hand in it. I think God is leading and guiding so that the right things are said at the right time. That's humbling and it's scary at the same time. But I believe God is in tune as we tune in to Him. And He's giving us what we need to hear. All right, let's move on. These conspire saying, let us go up against Judah, verse 6, and vex it, and let us make a breach therein for us. Read Daniel 11 where it talks about how they will come against the holy people. And some will forsake the holy covenant and conspire with them. Well, this thing does come down as the world against the church. The only holy people on earth today are those who are a part of the church of God. And even 90% of them will not be faithful. So we're talking about a very small group of people that this is ultimately going to boil down against. Now, it will destroy Ephraim, as we'll see here in a moment, the nation, and then they will turn their attention to Ephraim, the church, the firstborn. Okay? That's the way it's happening. So when they say, let us go up against Judah and vex it, they're not going up against the nation of Israel in the Middle East. There are far more Jews in New York, Miami, and Los Angeles and other places in America than there even begin to be in that little country of Israel. And most of them are Edomites anyway. 
from Esau. They're not true Jews. <coughs> so it's, if you're going to conspire against the Jews, you better conspire first against the United States. So let's vex Judah is the bottom line here. So this is warfare within Israel. Verse 7, Thus says the eternal God, It shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. So if there's a conspiracy against the spiritual Jews, it will not stand. Those who are told to fear not. That would be the church, not the physical Israelites. <clears throat> For the head of Syria is Damascus, the Arabs, and the head of Damascus is Rezin, and within threescore and five years shall Ephraim be broken, that it be not a people. Now, here is an interesting question. Sixty-five years from what? Obviously, it's an end-time prophecy. We see houses being emptied out. That's the context here. So from the time this conspiracy took root, Ephraim would be destroyed within 65 years. Not at 65 years, but within that number. God does not make it absolutely specific here. But before 65 years is finished. Now I speculated on this some time ago when I went back through this when we were talking about Emmanuel and using that name. <coughs> and... Uh, there are some interesting things that happened in the mid to late 40s. I'll review a little bit briefly here. The United Nations began in 1945. Now prior to the United Nations beginning, we had the League of Nations, which was pitiful didn't have strength, couldn't prevent World War II, couldn't get the nations to live together in peace, and could not establish its new world order. So the League of Nations was gotten rid of, and they started a new international community called the United Nations. Happened April 25th of 1945. <clears throat> so you have a beginning of what would become a worldwide organization, and almost every entity, nationality, is in the United Nations today. It's still powerless. It still does not have great strength. It's looked upon in some respects as a joke. But it is merely a vehicle that has been established that can later be filled out. Remember Revelation saying that they will give their power to the beast. Now the beast is there the formation of a, an organization to work through, but it has not been yet given the power. That will come later. And I suspect that the United Nations is that beast that it will arise, ultimately. <clears throat> All right, that began in 1945. If you subtract 1945 from 2009, and we're kind of between now, uh, from April to April, we're about halfway between 2008 and 2009, April. So we're looking at 63 to 64 years 
April of, of uh, 2009 will be 64 years that the UN has existed. Now, we also had an organization formed, the church, which began with its seeds back in the late 30s and early 40s. But it was a church that did not have power. It was not strong. It was weak. And one man was trying to evangelize and would build uh, little churches and he'd go away and they'd fall apart. So to give it better organization and strength, a college was begun in 1947, about the same time frame as the United Nations. So God began to build a stronger organization at the same time the world began to form a competing organization. Now they might not look at it and view it, or did not at that time and might not today, as the Church of God being a competing organization against the United Nations. The United Nations is not fully formed, if it turns out to be the vehicle the beast is built through, and the church itself has not, after this scattering, settled as a, an entity to be competing against. That's a little further down the road. But what I'm pointing out is God began to organize himself to do a work. And the world began, just prior to that, to form an organization to do a work. Now, Satan's counterfeit comes a little ahead of God's plan. He's trying to get the jump on God. So he built the UN a little before God caused Ambassador College to be built. And now we're going to see the New World Order emerge a little while before Christ begins his New World Order at his return. So the disparity in the times that these began, I think, is quite logical. The UN and Satan's instrument began a little before God began doing his. Now if you take 2009 and subtract 1947, you get 61 to 62 years. Not very far until 65 years. And with the United Nations and the world, the 63 to 64 year mark only puts us about a year and a half to come up with 65 years, doesn't it? And it says that Ephraim will fall within 65 years. So, if this analysis is correct, this nation will fall within the next one to one and a half years, it appears. Now, I don't know that I'm picking the right dates, the right events. I might not be, but I'm trying to put this down uh, into some context that would give us an idea of where we are. Now, it appears to be more likely that this is correct than it was when I went through it a couple years ago, because now we see the beginnings of the fall and the destruction of this nation. And a major step was made this past week. Washington Mutual also went down this past week. The biggest savings and loan in the nation. So, it continues. 
If they don't bail it out, it'll crash. If they do bail it out, it may save it for a few weeks or months and it'll crash anyway through incredible inflation. So it's going to happen no matter what they do in Washington this weekend. That person that I talked with this morning said that Pat Robertson, the politician preacher, had just said that we have 100 and, what was it, 127 or 157 days until Christ returns. And they wanted to know, was he right? I said, no. There's too much that has to happen between now and then. But the man understands and has been in politics, and he knows this thing is coming apart. That much he understands. He doesn't understand the three and a half years of tribulation. He doesn't understand what the church has to do even before that starts in building the temple and so on from Haggai and Zechariah. But he does understand that America is on its last legs and they're beginning to buckle. He does know that. If you want to know about this conspiracy, well, let, let me... Maybe I'll mention that just a little further along here, uh, if I, I remember. But the United Nations and this new world order contains a plan to destroy the true Jews, to do away with religion, and to utterly destroy Ephraim as a nation. As long as the United States' sovereignty is there, they can't proceed with their new world order. So our military might... And our sovereignty as a nation is standing in their way. That's why they created NAFTA, and we're going to be full of Mexicans ever after, until they get scared and go home. That's why they're pre pushing for a combination of Canada, America, and Mexico to destroy our borders, to make us weak. They're starting wars different places around the world, to weaken our military. And it has been weakened a great deal. So they're pulling us down, and now financially they made free and easy credit. Anybody can buy a house so they could get us in trouble and snatch our houses away from us. So what they have planned is exactly what God said would happen. And from the time that this was hatched, this conspiracy, Ephraim would be destroyed within 65 years. So they talked about <clears throat> the United Nations before they had the first meeting in San Francisco to establish it. Interesting, isn't it? They established it in Ephraim, in our own country, to destroy us. It says Ephraim, they won't destroy the Jews because the spiritual Jews, because Ephraim herself will fall. Okay, then going on down, it again talks about the leadership of Israel and the Arabs. And it says, if you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. Or my margin says, if you don't believe it, it's because you are not stable. There are, most of the churches of God today are still clinging to the idea that there is no conspiracy. There's no confederacy. There is no such thing as a new world order. I've heard that preached by 
some of the biggest groups, biggest churches of the scattering of worldwide. They still don't see it. Maybe a few of them are beginning to, I mean, you know, wake up and smell the coffee. <laughs> Ten years ago, maybe it wasn't as obvious. Right now it should be as plain as a nose on their face. And yet some of them are denying. They're not stable spiritually. They don't see it. Don't see it coming. Moreover, the Eternal spoke again to Ahaz, say, now you've got this prophecy here about what's coming down. And he says, now speak again to the king, to the church, if you will, spiritual Judah. Ask you a sign of the Eternal your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. Ask for a sign from on earth or in heaven. doesn't matter where you ask it. Ask a sign, Ahaz. They have said, I will not ask, neither will I attempt the eternal. I think that's good advice for us. We don't need to be asking for a great sign that we're the people or that this is the place or whatever. We can study the Bible. We can pray. We can see God's hand in our lives and in what we are learning and being taught. And he said, Hear you now, house of David. Is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? <clears throat> Therefore the Eternal himself shall give you a sign. You don't have to weary God with asking for signs, but God will give you a sign himself. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, we have read many scriptures which show that the object of the end-time church is to give birth to Christ. That we are to have his character, his mind, to be of the very mind of Christ, as Paul put it. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ also. So it is our job to build the same kind of character that God has and to give birth to Christ in our lives. And he talks about virgin daughter of Israel over and over in Isaiah and the other scriptures. So this fits <clears throat> together with all those scriptures. The church will conceive. Now it's ultimately talking, of course, of the birth of Christ. And you remember the story in Matthew where it says, you will call his name Joshua or Yeshua, but they will call his name Emmanuel. It's a prophecy. You, when he's born, will call him Yeshua, or Joshua. But they will call him Emmanuel. So that was a fulfillment of his actual birth. But we, today, are supposed to be giving birth to him as well, and we're talking about the context of an end-time prophecy here. So he's already been born 2,000 years ago the actual final great fulfillment of Christ's birth has occurred since Isaiah wrote this. <clears throat> but this is an end-time prophecy. So it's talking about a different birth than his actual physical birth to Joseph and Mary. Okay? So let's understand it from that prophetic context. 
Therefore, in the end time, God will give you a sign. A virgin shall conceive, a church, a young lady, who will not receive the indwelling of God's Spirit at baptism, when we are instilled of the Spirit of God is conceived in our minds? Yes. So the analogy perfectly fits the New Testament story of repentance and baptism, laying on of hands, and the conception of God's Spirit. So we have been baptized. We have God's Spirit. This virgin, this church, shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So at a certain point, the church is going to bring forth the works of God, the mind of God, to do things God's way, in other words, and will bear. It says we've been at the birthing. It says Ephraim and Jeremiah, I think 31, should not dwell long at the birthing place. But he says, bear down, be in pain and be delivered at Micah 4. Same analogy. We're supposed to bear down and become like Christ and think like him and have his mind. And when this begins to occur, we'll begin to call his name Emmanuel. Did we not recently begin to say that the world and Satan will have their own Jesus but we'll be able to tell the difference by using Emmanuel, and that was prophesied for a future time in Matthew 1. And here, it is in the context of the houses coming down, of Ephraim about to be destroyed within 65 years from a certain date, and the name Emmanuel will begin to be used. Now, is that coincidence or not? Now, butter and honey shall he eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. If you eat butter and honey, you learn that's good. If you eat other stuff, you learn that's not so good. So we're supposed to be dining on the good word of God to learn the difference between good and evil. <clears throat> Doesn't it say in Haggai that the priests should make a difference between the clean and the unclean. That which should be eaten and that which should not be eaten. And the context there is right at the time that it's time to build the church, the two witnesses will be on the scene and the remnant will come together. So this fits perfectly with Haggai and Zechariah right here. Before he's old enough to really know the difference between good and evil, the land that you abhor shall be forsaken of both her kings. Now, from the standpoint of this nation, we have come to abhor the culture, the way, the American way, the way of Baal, the way of Satan, that has taken over our people. We've come to abhor what is going on in this land, have we not? And are trying to depart from it and be not like it, and be not partakers of its sins and its plagues. Come out of her, my people. Abhor that. Don't go there. Pull away from it. 
Her leadership is going to be taken away. And we've already seen the leadership of the church taken away. Micah 4 talks about, is your king dead? Is your counselor perished? The Lord shall bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house days that have not come from that day that Ephraim departed from Judah, even the king of Assyria. So using a historical basis of Rehoboam and Jeroboam and, and the division of Israel, he says, worse is going to come, the king of Assyria will come against you. So what this is foretelling is that this nation will fall within 65 years of the conspiracy that was hatched. And that God's people will begin to use the name Emmanuel. And that this then will fall before a child is old enough to discern good and evil. Now that is an indeterminate time in the age of a child. It's a process. I can remember when I was a child, we would have a big family gathering, grandparents and aunts and uncles, and there'd be 30, 40 people there at the farmhouse. And there would be a lot of table on the food, a lot of food on the table. Man, <clears throat> how do I ever get anything right? Anyhow, there'd be a lot of food on the table, and afterward, there would be a lot of food on the floor. And I was just a little guy at some point in that, and my mother later told me that I made a pretty good living under the table. After everyone was done, little Daryl would crawl under the table and find all kinds of goodies that had been dropped. I don't know how old I was, the time she described, but maybe two, three, four, I don't know. But I had to discern the good from the evil, that which was dirty and on the floor, I would still eat. I've learned since somewhat better, and now I have the ten-second rule. It's been there all night. I won't pick it up and eat it, but if I just drop it, maybe. If it's a cookie, you can kind of blow it or dust it off. If it's a sloppy piece of meat, maybe even ten seconds is too long. But the point is, before this child would be born that we would call Emmanuel, Christ in us, God with us, this will come. So I think the dating may not be too far off here. I'm not setting a date. I'm not trying to set a date necessarily. I'm trying to give a basic time sequence here. So that from the time we started using Emmanuel till a child would be born and begin to know difference from evil, or the difference between good and evil, might be in the range of three to four years. And if we've been using Emmanuel now for a couple of years, then another year or two would put him at that age, right? And another year or two will put us at 65 years from the beginning of the United Nations at Ambassador College. So it appears that we're right in that time frame, and we see the nation beginning to crumble around us. The storm clouds are gathering, our enemies are beginning to cut us off. They're beginning to sell oil for other than dollars, and it has upset us greatly. And now we are seeing our financial system beginning to crash, and we're being moved out of our homes. I think the time is here. It's now.
It isn't something in the future anymore. And with the financial crash comes a military defeat. King of Assyria comes on as well. If you read Revelation 18, it talks about the destruction of our finances and a military destruction and our burning. And those ship captains sitting out there saying, where are we going to deliver our Walmart stuff? They're gone. They'll wail and moan. And then a beast will arise with a new currency and say, follow us. And everyone will say, oh, our Savior has arrived. It's in the works. It's happening right now. It shall come to pass in that day that the Eternal shall hiss for the fly that is in the uttermost part of the rivers of Egypt, Arab lands, and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. So it is going to be a worldwide conspiracy, including the Arabs, including the Assyrian. Go to Psalm 83 and you'll find it includes Edom. And Esau or Edom will laugh at our calamity because they are involved, because they are among the leaders of the banksters who are destroying our finances to help bring us down. And they shall come and shall rest all of them in the desolate valleys and in the holes of the rocks and upon all thorns and upon all bushes. In other words, they're going to be like a grasshopper plague. Read the book of Joel, where it talks about the grasshoppers and the locusts and various things coming. And it's talking about armies of men who are going to invade, and they'll be just like grasshoppers on every bush, everywhere. There are lots of Gentiles out there, folks, and they're coming here. And they're going to rip us up and kill us, unless we have the protection of Almighty God. And they shall, let's see, in verse 20, In the same day shall the Lord shave with a razor that is hired, namely by them beyond the river, by the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and shall also consume the beard. So God's going to hire an Assyrian army, a confederacy of our enemies, and they're going to clean shave us. Feet, hands, head, everything. Beard. They'll strip the hair off of us. It shall come to pass in that day that a man shall nourish a young cow and two sheep. There won't be much left. And it shall come to pass for the abundance of milk that they shall give. He shall eat butter, for butter and honey shall everyone eat that is left in the land. In other words, the wheat fields, the corn fields, all that is going to be gone. And if you wind up with a cow and a couple of sheep, uh, to get milk from, that's all you'll have. It shall come to pass in that day that every place shall be where there were a thousand vines and a thousand silverlings. It shall even be for briars and thorns. So grapes, vineyards represent wealth. I said it will just be briars and thorns. With arrows and with bows shall men come there, because all the land shall become briars and thorns. Things that stick you by people with bows and arrows and by literal thorns where there is no crop. And all hills that shall be digged with the mattock, there shall not come there the fear of briars and thorns, but it shall be for the sending forth of oxen and for the treading of lesser cattle. Just a few animals left wandering here and there, but no agriculture, no farming going on. All right. Man, where did the time go? I'm not done with this. Uh, moreover, the Eternal said to me, Take you a great roll and write in it a man's pen concerning Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And I took to me faithful witnesses to record Uriah the priest and so on. And I went into the prophetess and conceived, or she conceived, and bore a son. 
Then said the Eternal to me, Call his name Meher Shalal Hashbaz, which means spoil soon, pray, come quickly, or make haste to the spoil or pray. So Isaiah was to go into his wife. She was going to conceive. It would be nine months till the baby was born. And then before the child shall have knowledge to cry, My father and my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria shall be taken away before the king of Assyria. So the Arabs and the Israelites fall before the confederacy led by Assyria. Now these are two separate events. A church bringing birth to Christ and this coming on us before he's old enough to know good and evil, maybe three, four years. And a separate event where a child named Make Quick the Prey is born and before he can know daddy and mommy, the Assyrians will be here. So this is coming very quickly now. Uh, the Lord spoke to me again saying, For as much as this people refuses the waters of Shiloh that go softly and rejoice in Rezin and Remaliah's son, they're looking to our nation, our people, to save us. Oh, great government, bail us out, save us. Let us have our homes back. But it's not going to happen. They're looking to there instead of to God, like Psalm 108 said when we opened this sermon. Now therefore, behold, eternal brings, to up, brings up upon them the waters of the river, strong and many, even the king of Assyria and all his glory, and he shall come up over all his channels and go over all his banks, spread out all over the place like a flood. And he shall pass through Judah, he shall overflow and go over, he shall reach even to the neck. The real Jerusalem has a neck in the landform, the geology, interesting enough. And the stretching out of his wings shall fit the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. The church is in Ephraim. The land of Emmanuel, of Christ, is in Ephraim. The original Judah is in Ephraim. I think the scripture is establishing that. It's coming here. The people of Emmanuel are in this nation of Israel, or of Ephraim primarily, not elsewhere. Um, do I have time? Maybe just three or four minutes here I can kind of finish up this thought. He says, associate yourselves, or... Form a conspiracy or a confederacy. Associate yourselves together, you people, and you shall be broken in pieces, and give ear, all you of far countries. Gird yourselves, and you shall be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves, and you shall be broken in pieces. Take counsel together, and it shall come to nothing. Speak the word, and it shall not stand, for God is with us. So he's telling the nations of this world, you can come, you can destroy Ephraim, but you're not going to destroy my true people. Emmanuel means God is with us. He says in Zechariah 2, he's going to come and dwell with us, be with us. And the timing here is when this all comes down. We wondered when he would come and dwell with the villages of Jerusalem that are going to be built. When he would be a wall of fire and a canopy from the heat. And I think this is giving us the time element. 
It's at the time of the two witnesses in the building of the temple there in Haggai and Zechariah. But it also is at the time when the nation is falling around us and we will then need that protection. So he says you can make a big confederacy and destroy the nation of Ephraim and the other nations of Israel, but you're not going to destroy my people who are called Emmanuel, or by the name of Emmanuel, God with us. I read an article in the little prophecy magazine that United puts out. I'm getting it from Cal Morton's address. They forwarded it to me. And some writer there had picked up the name Emmanuel from a song. And he went on about Emmanuel and what a great name it is. But unless he wasn't telling it all, he doesn't have a clue about what the name of Emmanuel and when it would begin to be used mean. It was just a nice song, and he recognizes that it's a name for Christ. But he doesn't go on and explain the real meaning, which is what Isaiah 7 and 8 are all about. In context, God is with us. Make all your plans. Associate together. Talk all you want. But God is with us. Who's he going to be with? His people who use his name and follow his ways. For the Eternal spoke thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, this nation. Say you not a confederacy to, whom all, to all them to whom this people shall say a confederacy. Most of the church is denying that there is a conspiracy or a confederacy. Go to Steve Quayle's website, Steve Quayle's World. There was an article posted there yesterday called Final Warning, colon, The Birth Pangs of the New World Order. That is an incredible article which goes all the way back to 1776 and forward through the 1800s and 1900s up till today showing quotes from people who talked about the New World Order before George Bush Sr. ever mentioned it in 1990 or 91. He puts it together in an incredible way, just quote after quote after quote, saying what they have been planning, conspiring, a confederacy to do all these years, which we see now coming to pass before our very eyes, with the destruction of this nation so that they can get on with their new millennium. So don't deny that there is a conspiracy, he's saying. It is coming to pass. But don't fear their fear, nor be afraid. If we are obeying God, we do not need to be afraid. Sanctify the eternal of hosts himself, and let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. Read Psalm 108 again. And he shall be for a sanctuary, for a stone of stumbling and for a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, for a gin and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Jerusalem representing all the peoples of Israel, along with Samaria, the northern ten tribes. God is going to be a sanctuary for those who will obey him when all this comes down. And many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and be taken. Read Daniel 11 again about God's people being destroyed and taken and snared and stumbling. Bind up the testimony. Seal the law among my disciples. 
This is talking about the church. It is only the church of God who really believes in the Ten Commandments today. And most of the church of God today doesn't even believe them. And I will wait upon the Eternal that hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will look for him. Seek me with your whole heart, he says, and you shall find me. Jeremiah. Behold, I and the children whom the Eternal has given me are for signs and for wonders. Read Zechariah 3. Read Zechariah 4. God's people will do signs and wonders in Israel from the Eternal of hosts which dwell in Mount Zion. Signs and wonders will come from Mount Zion, the real Mount Zion, right here in southern Utah, where it's coming from. That's where the word will be disseminated and preached from a mountain in Ephraim. We'll read that probably real soon. And when they shall say to you, Seek to them that have familiar spirits, and to the wizards that peep and that mutter, should not a people seek their God for the living to the dead? Where are we going to find the answers? From God. We've been reading them today. Here are the answers, brethren. To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. If they don't understand Isaiah 7 and 8, they don't have any knowledge that is going to help them. They're blind. They're deaf. They're dumb. They don't bark. Let's stop right there. That's as far as we're going to get, obviously.